Uh, First Chronicles chapter 14 this evening, please. First Chronicles chapter 14. We are continuing on in our study in First Chronicles tonight. And First Chronicles 14 is our passage. Let's go ahead and stand, please. And we will read the entirety of the chapter. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and timber of cedars with masons and carpenters to build him an house. And David perceived that the Lord had confirmed him king over Israel, for his kingdom was lifted up on high because of his people Israel. David took more wives at Jerusalem and David begat more sons and daughters. Now, the ne- now these are the names of his children which he had in Jerusalem, Shammuah and Shobab, Nathan and Solomon, and Ibhar and Joshua and Elpalet, and Noga and Nepheg and Jephia, and Elishama and Beliada and Eliphalet. And when the Philistines heard that David was anointed king over all Israel, All the Philistines went up to seek David, and David heard of it and went out against them. And the Philistines came and spread themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines, and wilt thou deliver them into mine hand? And the Lord said unto him, Go up, for I will deliver them into thine hand. So they came up to Baal-perazim, And David smote them there, and David said, God hath broken in upon mine enemies by mine hand like the breaking forth of waters. Therefore they called the name of that place Baal-perazim. When they had left their gods there, David gave a commandment, and they were burned with fire. And the Philistines yet again spread themselves abroad in the valley. Therefore David inquired again of God, and God said unto him, Go not up after them. Turn away from them, and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when thou shalt hear a sound of going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt go out to battle. For God has gone forth before thee to smite the hosts of the Philistines. David therefore did as God commanded him, and they smote the host of the Philistines from Gibeon even to Gazer. And the fame of David went out into all lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. And let's pray. Father, we pray always for the Spirit's help in understanding the point of a passage. We ask for that now. We acknowledge these as your words, true, factual, for our instruction and benefit, and we pray then your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, we recognize always, folks, when we come to the Bible, at least I hope, that we have certain natural abilities with reference to a text of Scripture. We can read its words. We can read nouns and verbs and those kinds of things. We can read sentences. But always we are in search of 
the Lord's help and the Lord's point in a story. And that is true in a passage like this, of course. What does the passage tell us? And we will look at that and deal with that. And the passage actually gives us three distinct little episodes, all of which, of course, concern David. One of the other things that we can do kind of naturally, and I don't mean anything sinful by that, but within our ability is compare this passage when possible to other passages. In the case of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, we are dealing with events that are, for the most part, found in other places in the Bible. There's a sense in which Chronicles and Samuel and Kings function a little bit, and, and I only mean in a harmony standpoint, like the Gospels do. We know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us pretty much the same information. Not every story is exactly the same. There are differences in the details, but in general, they're telling us the same thing, and we study that. Part of the way we study the Gospels is to look at the way Matthew tells a story, and Luke tells a story, and Mark tells a story. And we do that here. Were we to do that here, and this is not what we are doing in First Chronicles, we're just kind of working through Chronicles, but if we went to the companion passage in Second Samuel, we would notice that whoever wrote Chronicles, the chronicler, he rearranged the order of the material. Samuel kind of gives it to you in a straightforward way, and Samuel then tells you, about David's military conquests first, and then about the moving of the ark. But if you'll notice the way that this passage is laid out, folks, last Sunday night in chapter 13, we saw about a failed attempt to move the ark of the covenant. And because they didn't follow the scriptural pattern, they ended up in trouble, and the ark of the covenant was, again, moved, but not to its permanent home. But if we get to chapter 15 and on into chapter 16, the chronicler returns us to the story of the movement of the ark. And the ark has moved successfully. And right in the middle of that, in what to us is chapter 14, are the events that we have here. Now there's not anything wrong with that. It, it doesn't call into question the integrity of the Bible. But it is one of those things that when we read it, we want to make note of it. If we're being attentive to what's going on, we note that the man who gave to us Chronicles is trying to deal with the material in a, in a, from a perspective other than simply the chronology of events, which is, again, completely realistic. You need to know this stuff. I want you to understand these facts and place them in a framework is far more important to him than knowing this is what happened on January 1st, this is what happened on February 1st, this is what happened on March 1st, and so on. So the events in chapter 14, I would suggest to you, have bearing upon the ark, but they are not directly about the ark. <clears throat> they are about the way that God established David as the king. And because God establishes David as the king, and because of the kind of king that David is, the ark will have found a resting place in the kingdom of David. I remind us again that this is a, 
series of events written to people who are looking at it historically just like we are. Not current events, but actually quite old history. David has been dead probably close to 500 years. When the people who are the recipients of First and Second Chronicles get their hands on this material. All of David's successors down through Zedekiah have reigned. The captivity has come. Jerusalem has been destroyed. Cyrus gives the command to rebuild. And these are the people who are on the receiving end of it. So there is a little bit of a perspective, and I, 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 I put this in my notes, and so indulge me a little bit graciously and don't, don't use what I'm about to say and go off pondering American politics. But, you know, Mr. Trump is campaigning and has campaigned on his slogan of Make America Great Again, which without constituting an endorsement or a criticism of Donald Trump, I just think that if you think carefully about his campaign slogan, there are at least two things being implied. Number one is that America is not what it once was. And number two, it ought to be what it once was. Which means that anybody who doesn't think that America was ever that great or doesn't think that it should return to that is obviously not going to support his candidacy because that's the perspective that he brings. And I say all that not to introduce American politics or Mr. Trump into the church sermon, but because what historical perspective is being brought to these returning captives if it isn't the splendor of the kingdom as it should have been and as it once was and as we will note at the end, as it one day will be again. David's kingdom becomes the template and a little bit of the model for the kingdom that will come. So with that, let's just turn our attention to chapter number 14, and we're just going to kind of do something that I think by now is pretty familiar to us. We're going to walk through the material, and then we're going to make a couple of points of application at the end of it. As I mentioned, these 17 verses kind of cover three distinct events. The first event is found in verses 1 and 2. And this is the prominence of the Davidic kingdom. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, timber of cedars, masons, carpenters, to build him a an house. And David perceived that the Lord had confirmed him king over Israel. For his kingdom was lifted up on high because of his people Israel. So here's the story of a friend. Here's the story of a friend. Tyre, folks is one of the great cities of antiquity. Tyre is truly a powerhouse city-state. It is a city that is built on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. It has then the protection of water all around it. We know that it is a great commercial center. Joshua 19.29 tells us that it was a strong city. It will go on to become very adversarial to the people of the Lord and actually identified even with Satan. But at this point in time, that is not the way we think about the city of Tyre. And in fact, 1 Kings 15.1, you don't need to turn to it, but let me just read it to you. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of of David. 
So when we read these first two verses, folks, and we read about Hiram, the king of Tyre, and his contribution to the city of David, this is the story of a friend. This is a story who reminds us about the prominence of the Davidic kingdom. There's nothing to suggest that David had a sinful relationship with this man, that he had violated any of the Bible precepts or injunctions about interacting with foreign governments or foreign people. Uh, Tyre wasn't a part of the promised land. It was not land that they would occupy. And one of the promises that God made, or part of the promises that God had made to Israel, was that if they were faithful to him, they would enjoy the respect of other nations. Deuteronomy 4.5, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do so in the land, whither you go to possess it, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great, that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? So notice, folks, to go back to verses 1 and 2, and I'm not going to read them for the third time, but notice the way the chronicler presents to you and interprets the information. Right here is arguably one of the most powerful economic entities in the world. And it recognizes Israel. And it provides materials to David to build him a house. And the house then being built... 14.2, David comes to recognize that God has established him as a king. I mean, there's now tangible evidence that God is doing something that is going to have a long-lasting quality to it in the life of David. And you'll notice that the kingdom is lifted high, the end of verse 2, for his kingdom was lifted up on high. Now, David has the right perspective about this. David doesn't think he's up on high, but he does think that the kingdom is up on high because of God. And I would suggest to you folks that this refers back, and I will not take us back there again tonight, to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, that the chronicler is still wanting us to think of David in contrast to Saul. Again, this is something that we won't really catch in English, but if we were reading the Hebrew we would catch it in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 and verse number 9. The Philistines took Saul's head and removed it from his body and put it up on high. Same word that is used in this passage about the kingdom. The Philistines elevated Saul's head in mockery. David or God elevates Israel in dignity. So that's the first story. The story of a friend and the prominence of David's kingdom. The second story is verses 3 through 7. We will not go back and read it. I do not wish to read again a list of the David's children, none of whom could be called Bill or Bob or Sam. But this is both the prosperity and the peril 
of David's family. And this is the story of family. First is the story of a friend. This is the story of family. There are two components. I've already touched upon them. Both the prosperity and the peril that David's family faces. And I don't think that we want to ignore either of them. We don't want to pick one over the other. They are both there. Again, let me refer you back to the reign of Saul. First Chronicles 10.6 So Saul died and his three sons and all his house died together. And one day David will raise this question is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I could show kindness to? Or is there anybody left? Because almost everybody's gone. That's what became of Saul. What became of David? His family was multiplied. And we will get to this, folks, very quickly. First Chronicles chapter 17. God will promise to David a family in perpetuity. Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. My mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. So there's a point, folks, to this. To this David and his sons here is that his is not only a prominent kingdom, his is a permanent kingdom. But it is a permanent kingdom that is imperiled as well. Deuteronomy 17.17 says about the day when there will be a king. There is no king in Deuteronomy, but God says there will be a king. And when there is a king, he may not multiply wives to himself. He may not multiply wives to himself. Neither shall he greatly, by the way, multiply to himself silver and gold. Now we could have a lengthy conversation about whether or not David violated this, but I would point out to you that he had eight wives. That's not as many as Solomon would have. But even by the most conservative Old Testament standards, folks, David had a lot of wives. Michael, Abigail, Ahinoam, Maacah, Haggith, Abital, Eglah, and Bathsheba. And that doesn't even count 2 Samuel 5.13, the concubines. So David violated Deuteronomy 17.17. And even if you're David, there is a danger in violating the command of Scripture. There is a peril that is attached to this. There's no record ever that his wives turned away his heart. And in fact, clearly Abigail and Bathsheba proved to be solid, godly, reliable wives. But nevertheless, the prohibition stood. No multiplication of wives. And you know the story of David's life well enough to know that he experienced a lot of heartache at the hands of his sons and over the way that they behaved. 
So we're told about the prominence of David's kingdom, verses 1 and 2. How do we know it was prominent? Look at the way the great power Tyre responded to it. And we're told about the prosperity of David. Look at all of his sons. But there is a peril built into that prosperity. Just a reminder, folks, that although David is a great king, he's not the king. He's not Christ. And then in verses 8 through 17, two distinct episodes are the story of the power of David's kingdom. The prominence of his kingdom, the prosperity and the peril of his kingdom, and the power of his kingdom. And this is the story of David's faithfulness. The story of a friend, the story of his family, and the story of his faithfulness. And once again, I would suggest to you that the only legitimate way to read the account is to read it with Saul in the back of your mind. David inquired of the Lord. Verse 10. Verse 14. Therefore David inquired again. And the Bible is very clear to remind us that Saul did not inquire of the Lord. Inquiring of the Lord was not something that bothered with his, that captured his attention. So what stands out in this passage, folks, is exactly the opposite. The nature of David's conduct. And you have, if you look at verse number 10, David inquired of God saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? They've come out against him, right? We got a new king. We're going we're gonna to recover our territory. We knew how to take care of Saul. We know how to take care of this next king. Here are the Philistines gathered on the battlefield. What should we do? What should we do? Well, here is the pattern that David follows. Shall I go up against the Philistines, and wilt thou deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said, Go up, for I will deliver them. And you have in verse number 11 that word breach once again. We talked about that. God made a breach when Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the ark, and God just broke through and smashed Uzzah. And now God does the same thing on behalf of Israel, not against Israel. Like the crashing of a great wave on the shore, the hand of God reached out and killed the Philistines. And then the same thing, folks, in verse number 14. Therefore David inquired again of God, and God said unto him, Go not up after them, turn away from them, come up upon them over against the mulberry trees. And when you hear the sound of the wind in the mulberry trees, then you attack God the general, God the strategist. And the point is this, folks. The victory is not because David is a better general. The victory is not because David had a better army. The victory is not because David had better weapons. The victory is because David asked the right person for help. And again, this turns back to something that God had promised to Israel. Deuteronomy 2.25, this day, will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven. You know, folks, it's not accidental that although it is one of the smallest physical countries on earth, nobody ever forgets about Israel for long. 
God's not going to let the world forget about Israel for long. Deuteronomy 26, 19, And to make thee high above all the nations which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God as he hath spoken. Deuteronomy 28, 1, It shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. This is prominence that David enjoys in his world. And it is clearly tied to be a product of his faithfulness to the Lord. Lord, tell me what I should do. I'm not going to trust in my battle strength. I'm not going to trust in my experience against Goliath. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. So that is the way the story is told. Let me just take a few minutes then this evening and, and do two points, different points of application. Number one, with reference to David's kingdom. With reference to David's kingdom. David's kingdom in its glory and its splendor, and it really comes to a peak under Solomon. I mean, David and Solomon are these twin pillars of the glory of Christ's kingdom. Preview. We read this morning in Sunday school, Jesus said, look at Solomon, and there's a greater one than Solomon here. This is the kingdom that we are waiting to receive. Hebrews 12, 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace or gratitude, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So when we read about David's kingdom, folks, we don't want to just lift our eyes to that point and think about how glorious and powerful David's kingdom was. We want to recognize that he is a preview. He is the trailer for a far greater kingdom headed by a far greater king. And then secondly, let me just call your attention, if I can, to three verbs that describe David's actions that would be very good for us to imitate. Three verbs that are in the passage about David's actions. The first is found in verse number two, David perceived. David perceived. David knew, that's the idea. He came to this knowledge. And folks, there are things that we can perceive because God has told them to us. We need to embrace them by faith. But we perceive them. You should perceive that you have a kingdom waiting for you. Not your own individual kingdom. But there is a kingdom that God has promised to his people. There are things that God has said and we should know them and embrace them and trust them. The second verb is found in verse number three, and this one, I think, has a note of caution to it. David took. David took. We should be very careful about what we want and pursue in this world and endeavor to, endeavor to have our desires informed by the Bible. 
It is the nature of human beings, folks, to be driven by various desires, or what our King James Bible calls lusts. Unbelieving people are simply governed by their desires. They're not governed by logic. They're not governed by ration, by reason. They're governed by desires. They want things. We want things. And David wanted something, and he took it. And there was a peril to that. We should measure all of our wants in light of Scripture. And then the third one we've already talked about, and that is found in verse 10 and 14, David inquired. David inquired of the Lord. David perceived that God had done something, and God has done something for us, and we should be aware of it. David took, and we should just take carefully in this life. And David inquired. He sought the Lord. As we will see, he went back to the scriptures to learn what to do and then submitted himself to it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be genuinely comforted as we perceive that we are receiving a kingdom that will not be shaken. We live in a world that is shaking. Troubled times. Uncertainty. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. May we perceive that. Grant to us grace in the things that we pursue. And may we always be busy inquiring of you through your word as to what are the true valuable pursuits of life. I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.